In just a moment, we're going to stand again and read the scripture, but I'm going to say a couple of words um, before. So, we live in a culture that has a habit of consuming things. Like, uh, we don't tell stories maybe as much as we used to. We go watch stories at the movie theater. We don't cook maybe as much as we used to. We go to the restaurant to buy food. Um, we, don't li- we, we don't play music as much as we used to. We get a Spotify subscription. Like in all of those instances, we're, we're consuming um, in areas where we used to primarily produce or participate in. And I'm not, I'm not necessarily providing a critique of, of that, although there, there may be a critique that could be made. But my point is this. When we enter into the church setting uh, to worship God, it's very tempting for us to bring with us those habits of consumption into a setting like this. But that's not what worship is. We're not, just, we're not like consuming a worship experience. We are actually participating in the act of worship. And so, I mean, this, as I've mentioned before, this is not technically a worship service. This is a Bible study. But nonetheless, what I'd like to do as we move along is develop a little bit of participation for what is to come in these worship settings. So, what I'm, we're going to read the text here in just a moment that we're going to look at. Ephesians chapter 2, you're welcome to turn there. Uh, Ephesians chapter 2 beginning at verse 1, and we're going to read through verse 10. And when I get to the end of the reading, I am going to say something, and you're going to respond. I am going to say, this is the word of the Lord. And you're going to, what are you going to respond with? Thanks be to God, God, right? Because it's a big deal. We just read scripture. God has communicated himself to us. And we don't take that lightly. If he didn't do it, we are just oblivious, and we're blindly walking through without hope in this world. But God has communicated himself to us, and this is the word of the Lord. And we say, thanks be to God, because, like I said, without it, we're lost. So let's stand as we read the scripture. Ephesians chapter 2, beginning at verse 1. And you were dead... In the trespasses and sins in which you once walked, following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience, among whom we all once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind, and were by nature children of wrath, like the rest of mankind. But God, being rich in mercy, Because of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. By grace you have been saved, and raised us up with him, and seated us with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus, so that in the coming ages he might show the immeasurable riches of his grace and kindness toward us in Christ Jesus. For by grace you have been saved through faith, and this is not your own doing, it is the gift of God not a result of works, so that no one may boast. For we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand, that we should walk in them. This is God's word. Very good. You may be seated. Uh, 
Um, let me say something else along those lines. Uh, you remember our, a point that we made at the very beginning, we've returned to it a couple of times. Gospel doctrine plus gospel culture equals the power of God in the church. And one of the things that makes like church plants unique is that you can really develop this culture in an um, effective way because of the smallness of it. And here's another thing. Because of the requirements that it requires upon you, you guys, there's a lot of work that goes into this. And there's not a whole lot of systems that are in place. And so when you have that kind of recipe, it puts burden on kind of everybody. Um, but it's good. I, I was with a group of church planters, and uh, one of the pastor who's been a pastor at a church for like 14 years, but he planted it, you know, 14 years ago. And he said, you know, we didn't have a, a shiny or slick youth ministry or even children's program, but what we could offer our kids there at the very beginning was um, a demonstration of what it looks like to be fully engaged in the church. Because every Sunday, every week they gathered, parents, um, the adults were helping put chairs out, storing chairs, fixing meals, doing all the things that we're doing. He said, that's, a, that's an important thing for, your, for our children to see. That we are not just consuming, right, church, but we're actually being the church and making the church happen. And so uh, just kind of bear that in mind as we move forward and even as you may be asked to, to do things. <laughs> um, I should also say this. You can come and just check things out as well. It's not, we're not going to throw you in right off the bat um, to serve. I mean, you're welcome to explore and check things out, but we do need your help and we're grateful for it. Next. We're in Ephesians chapter 2. What, what Paul, we, we've made it through chapter 1, and what Paul has been doing is he's kind of setting up a, um, what the kingdom of God looks like. The, the principles and rhythms of God's kingdom. And they, they stand apart, they're unique from the kingdom of this world. What St. Augustine called the city of man, right, versus the city of God. Okay, and so I wanted to just, this is kind of the, the, the contrast that we've had so far in our study of Ephesians. Remember the first week, Paul's words, grace, then peace, right, being sort of a summary of Christianity. Uh, we saw in the next passage that the kingdom of God begins and ends with God, um, that our lives had their purpose formed before the foundation of the world and the end to which our lives move is to the praise of his glorious grace, right? You see how it begins and ends with God? The kingdom of this world is a peace then grace approach. Like if you can get peace with God through a stellar moral record, then you will unlock God's favor upon you and gifts and greatness will come to you. Only if you don't disappoint God with your life. If you get peace with him. Uh, the kingdom of this world begins and ends with us, right? We are the end-all, be-all of our, of, our, of our lives. It relies upon human might. 
Last week we saw that, that the church relies upon what? The power of God. Resurrection power. The power that raised Christ from the dead, Paul said in that prayer, is the power that's at work in us who believe. The kingdom of God is on the road to somewhere. Right? Our own world's on the road to nowhere. Um, if it begins and ends with us, you can, it's like we're a dog chasing our tail. Where is that dog going? <laughs> nowhere. Yeah, exactly. Nowhere. Um, and that's, that's where this gets you, is nowhere. But God's gracious activity in the world is putting us on the road to somewhere. And not just anywhere. Christ, God and his grace is exalting us to co-reign with Jesus over all the universe. Like, that's incredible. Okay, that's chapter one. Chapter two. What we read in chapter two is, might seem, and actually we're only going to focus on the first three verses. So we read all 10 verses, but we're going to focus on verses one through three. And those verses are, it may feel deflating, right? It's an honest and severe description of our sin. And it presents a unique problem to us in our own day. Because as we have um, pushed God in, in, in our little kingdom of this world, we've nudged God to the margins of our lives and have in some cases like totally removed him from our lives, from having any like real bearing on our lives, what have we had to do to deal with that move? We've had to pump, inflate the self. Because you got to have an ultimate thing. And so if we get rid of God, then, then, you, then what follows quickly after that is the exaltation of the self. And that's where we are. We believe the self has um, unlimited potential, uh, a, a capacity to, um, to do anything that it wants, as long as it believes firmly in itself. Um, and so what Paul does in these verses here is he just sucks the wind out of that sail of the self, right? The idea that you can be the captain of your own destiny, Paul says, not so fast. And I want to suggest to you that this is actually a good thing, that what may seem like on the surface, on the outside, like a bad thing, this, these verses on sin once, you know, there's that statement in the, in the Chronicles of Narnia. I'm not, I don't remember which character it is, but basically makes the observation that from the outside of the stable, the stable looks kind of limited and small and it's not big. And then you get on the inside. It's like a whole nother experience. And so here's my claim. It's very tempting for us to look at all this stuff on sin and God's wrath and our enslavement to the world, the flesh, and the devil as being antiquated, backwards, and producing in us like hostility towards one another. But the actual, the actual reverse is the case. That this doctrine of sin actually um, is liberating. And we'll see that as we move through it. Not only liberating, but it is an equalizer. It is um, something that helps us, I think, better relate to our neighbor if we fully embrace and understand it. So, let's take a look. Beginning at verse 1, 
Paul says right out of the gate, you were dead in the trespasses and sins in which you once walked. Okay, you were dead. Like, that's pretty severe. What, what can a dead person do in order to help themselves? Nothing. What kind of ability or will can a dead thing muster in order to help itself? Nothing. And he says you were dead in the trespasses and sins. And th- those are two different, um, two different words. And the fact that they are right there next to each other suggests that, that Paul, Paul wants us to see the nuance between the two words. A trespass is like an overt violation of the command of God. Okay, like there's a clear line and you crossed it. A sin, to sin is to, is to miss the mark. Um, you could imagine like a archery, a target, and you shoot the arrow and it just, it misses its target. That's what sin is. Um, so we have both sinned and not only that, we've violated God's law. You could think of it like this. Um, you know, in sports, you have a tryout for a team. And you could, you could not be on the team for a couple of reasons. One, you didn't make the team. You didn't make the cut. You, mi- you missed the mark. There were certain marks that you had to hit in order to be good enough to be on that team. And you didn't hit them, okay? So that's one, fa- one type of failure. The second type of failure is that you're really good at whatever the sport is. You make the team, but then you violate team policy. Okay, that would be like a trespass. You're on the team, but then you're kicked off the team because you've violated uh, the rules that the team has. Well, Paul says, you both can't make the team. And even if you made the team, you'd violate the team policy immediately. Like, your problems are pretty bad. Continuing, it gets worse. We're following uh, the course of this world. So this language, this is, the language is shifting, right? Because we were dead in our trespasses and sins. Not only that, though, we're following the course of this world. You, uh, you can imagine like a course, like a track, like a path. And we're just sort of, we're enslaved to the, tra- to the, to the track. And we're not veering from it. We're enslaved uh, to the patterns and habits of this world. We were, right? That's what Paul's saying. We were. The kingdom of this world we were enslaved to its habits and patterns and, and paths. And not only were we enslaved to the world, but we were also enslaved to the devil. Following, Paul says, also the prince of the power of the air. And he's referring to Satan there. And that word air connotes like a foggy atmosphere. Um, and that's what Satan does, right? He muddles things. He deceives. He creates a fog that makes it difficult for us to see through. Um, one of the things that Satan does is he, he makes what is wrong seem right, and what is right seem wrong. And so we're enslaved to that kind of deception, following the prince of the power of the air. And so that, that's kind of the foggy atmosphere that Satan creates, but it gets even worse 
because Satan is at work, Paul says, in a, or he was at work in us. The, the spirit um, of Satan, I don't know that it's to say that we're all like demon possessed, but the spirit of deception that is the trademark of Satan is at work, was at work within us before we come to faith in Christ. And it's still at work, Paul says, in the sons of disobedience. So Satan's working his craftiness outside of us and inside of us, and we were enslaved to that, okay, apart from Christ. So we got the world that gives us problems that we're enslaved to. We've got the devil that gives us serious problems both around us and even within us apart from Christ. And then Paul gives us a third area of of problem for us, and that is the passions of the flesh. Flesh. Verse 3, he says, Among whom we all once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind. Right, The desires of the body. I mean, the body has desires, desires for food, desires for sleep, desires for um, sex. And those things have been twisted into um, sloth and gluttony and lust. But it's not just the desires of the body. It's the desires of the mind, too. Look, um, which would be things like uh, jealousy and covetousness, the desire to have somebody else's stuff. Um, And not only that, but even pride would be a desire, a passion of the flesh um, that works, that that begins in the mind. Okay, so Paul gives us pretty stark terms to describe our, our situation apart from Christ, right? We are spiritually dead, we're enslaved to, to the world, to the flesh, and the devil. This is probably one of the most um, plausible Christian doctrines, this doctrine of sin that I think Christianity has. I mean, there's a lot of controversy with Christian uh, claims, but I would say that the, the doctrine of our sin is so believable. G.K. Chesterton said that it is the most... Um, empirically verifiable Christian doctrine, the doctrine of original sin. And, you know, we're we're so sort of in it that we don't even notice it. I mean, why why do you have locks on your doors? I mean, it's just standard. If you bought a new home and there was no locks on it, you would think, this is crazy. This is, that's, it's because we live in a world marked by sin. Password to your email account, we live in a sinful world. We wouldn't need those things if it wasn't for this sin that entangles us. And, and let me say this, too. Our culture is obsessed with the self. There was a mag. I don't know if it's still around. You know, magazines have come on hard times. But there was a magazine called Self, a whole magazine devoted to the topic. Um, we are obsessed with the self, and we try to just apply all kinds of balm to it and make it feel better about itself. I think our obsession with the self is proof that the self is, has some serious problems. I mean, ima- imagine this. Imagine if I, um, every time I saw you guys, I said, hey, my knee, it's feeling really good today. You know, it's, 
I, I went on a jog yesterday, and it, it just gave me no problems. It's working. When I sit down, there's no problems, and then it, I, I get back up, and it just lifts me back up. The knees are working really good. Every time you saw me, all I could do was talk about the knee. You'd pro- After some time, you'd probably think, this guy has a knee problem. <laughs> Why is he talking about his knee all the time? And that's, that's sort of what's going on with this talk about the self. Clearly, there's a problem. And that's why we can't stop talking about it. Because we're trying to deal with this problem of, of sin. Now, I think the next verse, continuing in verse 3, is where things get maybe a bit more touchy for us. Because what Paul says there is that this spiritual death that we have experienced in our enslavement to the world, the flesh, and the devil, which is our state as a result of our inherited sin, right? We just were born that way. That has made us, verse 3, by nature, children of wrath, like the rest of mankind. We start talking about God's wrath, and we get a little uneasy about that. Um, I'll come back to that in just a moment. But what Paul is saying, that we are all in this state. There was a Puritan, uh, actually they taught their kids the letter A, by saying, A, in Adam's fall, we sinned all. (laughs) How do you like that? little original sin, right there from the very beginning of the alphabet. Um, In Adam's fall, we sinned all. So all of mankind is entangled in this mess of sin and has transgressed um, the law of God and is by nature a transgressor. Like, you don't have to do anything to um, bring about God's judgment upon you. You're by nature. Now, in one sense, this is very plausible. Like, you look around at the globe, and we see this working itself out all over the place. Nations are fighting and, and... throwing threats at one another. Um, more locally, with nationally, we've got problems within our country. There's racial tensions and divides. There's political divisions and divides. Locally, there's problems even within our community. If you look at your family, there's, there's, if we look, you know, peel back a few of the layers, and there's, there's difficulty and strife and challenges within family. And then if we open up our own hearts, we see a mess of sin running through us. So in some ways, this is very, very plausible. But if we think, if we have difficulty believing that we are indeed entangled in a mess of sin, I want to suggest to you that the problem is that we are, the problem is one of perspective, right? Because we're all in the mess ourselves. So we don't, we don't see it. Um, I'll give you an example. When I was in college, we went to, uh, I took a trip to Tibet to study the language and culture. And going over there, we, we, we knew that we would um, only get like one shower in an eight-week period, maybe two. Like once a month, we would shower. And so we had the expectation that we would just be stinky over there in Tibet. But a funny thing happened. We got there, and we only got like one, I think we got one shower the whole time that we were in this city for like six weeks. But we didn't smell. 
It was amazing. It was incredible. I didn't, didn't wear a deodorant. And there was no odor. We actually did smell <laughs> really bad. But we didn't notice it because we were all stinky together. And we were living in the midst of a, of a, of a stinky people, <laughs> of a people that showered only once a month. And so nobody even noticed the stench. That's what it's like for us and our sin. Like we are all fall so short of what we were created to be. But it's hard for us to see because we have no perspective to see what righteousness looks like. In fact, when we see it, we might just hate it, right? Because righteousness has walked among man, among humanity, right? And what did we do? We put, him, we put it to death. We put him to death. Jesus, we didn't like the truth when it came right before us. So, um, you're a moral failure. Now, not only that, you, well, you may say, okay, I get that I have transgressed the law of God, whatever that is, but I don't even, I just totally dismiss this idea that God, that there's a God, that he has a law, um, that, 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 that he has a law for us to, to um, adhere to. I just kind of, you know, I want to do my own thing. I'm, I kind of have my own ethic, and I live by that, and I get along just fine. Well, let me ask you this. Imagine that we put a recording device around your neck. This is a Francis Schaeffer illustration. We put a recording device around your neck, and it picked up every moral claim or every moral judgment that you ever made in your life. Things like, oh, I love it when people help the poor, or I can't believe that person cut me off on the highway, or, you know, oh, that, she's so nice, or can you believe he said that about her, whatever it is. Your whole life, all of your moral judgments, it's recorded. And then, at the end of your life, you listen to that recording of all those moral judgments and claims, and then we compare that with your actual life. You would fall short of your own standard, much less God's standard of what's right and wrong. Like, we, we are moral failures, every last one of us. And, as a result, we have incurred the wrath of holy God, which, like I said earlier, makes us feel very uneasy. We don't, we don't like that language. But let me tell you that that is a unique perspective. Let me tell you that, that, that what we've just covered is actually very liberating for us to hear. Because, like I said, it is the great equalizer. And we're not, um, we're not better than anyone else, right? There's a, there's a solidarity that it creates for us. But this language of God's wrath, um, I, I, I would say that this is a unique problem. Uh, in fact, in cultures past, and even in cultures in, in other parts of the world, the problem isn't really with God's wrath. The problem is with God's grace. That's the, the scandalous claim that's so hard to get. I would say it has that kind of scandal for us as well. But other, you know, other cultures other times have had much, they've not been uncomfortable with the idea that, that there's a God that has wrath towards people. Um, in fact, a, a Yale professor, Miroslav Volf, 
um, has talked about his own experience witnessing uh, the genocide of his people. And he says, if you see your brothers and your sisters and your mothers um, right before your eyes, horrible things happen to them and them being murdered with just callousness, the only way for you to get through that experience is by believing that there is a God who is righteous and just in his, in his actions. That's the only way you can, you can respond with nonviolence towards that kind of hatred towards your loved ones. And he says the reason Americans have such difficulty with it is because, by and large, we, we live such a cushy existence. So we haven't had the kind of suffering that makes this seem not only plausible, but good and right for God to not let sin go. Now, I said that this is, uh, I said that this is a doctrine that is actually liberating. And I think it is. Because, okay, think of it this way. We didn't make God's team. And even if we made God's team, we would violate team policy right off the bat. Okay? Um, Which means we don't even have to go to the tryout. (laughs) We don't even have to get ready or prepare ourselves because it is a hopeless cause. But here's what it means. There's a single solution to this problem of sin. A single solution. There's only one thing that we can place our hope in. And it comes, you see it in these, in verse chapter, or I'm sorry, verse four of Ephesians. Two words. Two of the most important words in all the scriptures. But God. Okay? So we're on this horrible track to experience the, the, the wrath of God and to just fall further and further down this path of enslavement to sin and death to sin. But God has intervened on our behalf. And that is um, to read like a breath of fresh air that there is this good news. And here's the thing. The only way to really deal with the self that our, that our own culture is, is really kind of obsessed about, and, and understandably so, is to reckon with the truthfulness of who we are. And I think the Christian claim on who we are, even in these three verses, is, like G.K. Chesterton said, the most empirically verifiable Christian doctrine, our own entanglement in sin. Now, at the risk of putting us all into a depression this week, we're going to stop right there. Um, Because that's the problem. Okay, that's the problem that we have. Verse 4 and following is the solution. And it is like a dizzying, uh, wonderful solution that God has done. What God has done is a joyous thing worth celebrating. And we're going to do that next week. But until then, what I would like to do, we're actually not going to break up into small groups today. Because um, we've got, we have a Super Bowl um, gathering for the youth that's coming up. I guess the game starts at 5.30. So we're going we're gonna to wrap up, you know, in just a few minutes. But what I'd like to do is open up um, the room for any questions you might have on this passage.
thoughts, comments, and questions. Anybody? So I, with you on the original sin, completely, I'm just curious when it says, um, the Lord says that Job is blameless and upright. I'm just kind of curious, what, what's his predicament? Yeah. That way right. Well, and you no, know, Noah. And I'm not. I don't recall the exact words that are used in that phrase. But something similar is said of Noah, right, in um, Genesis chapter six, that Noah was righteous, and and actually the the follow up is that he found favor um, before the Lord, and um, you know, in that instance in particular. The, the word favor, I think, is best understood as that Noah had received um, a grace from God. Um, but folks in the, in the Old Testament, I mean, I, I think the, the question is, um, you know, Job's a little bit unique because he's, he's sort of outside the, the, the covenant community. He, his story takes place separate, on a separate earlier than any of the other parts of Scripture. But um, the question, you know, in the Old Testament is, um, what is your relationship um, to the promises of God? And are you embracing the promises of God? And it is by an embrace in the promises of God that a person is saved. So that Christ's work, we're all, we're all, like that. Paul could say the exact same thing about Job and Abraham and David and whoever else in the Old Testament. And those folks as well were saved by Christ, but it was his death covered them retroactively. Um, so I don't know if that is helpful. I, what I would want to do is kind of look at those words that are used, because that, that set of a number of Old Testament um, characters. Um, I'm more familiar with the Noah situation, and there the word favor is used. And that's how I'd understand the favor is that grace. Any other questions or comments? It, does anybody find this doctrine kind of um, difficult to, difficult pill to swallow? Uh, does anybody find it liberating? Could you elaborate a little bit, Clay? Um, so... I've seen this recently. A couple of new clients came in and they said, hey, I'm switching to you because, and they said, because I had a problem with Yola. I said, I'm going to have a problem too at some point, right? Like, I'm going to make a mistake too or something. And it's very liberating to be able to say, none of us are perfect. Yeah. And it just frees you. I mean, like, truth frees. Yeah. And so to be able to just kind of all settle into that. And that's yeah. one of the other partners. But it's definitely yeah. Freeing. Yeah. That is yeah. That's really good. So, under this approach... If this, if this kingdom relies on human might and human righteousness and begins and ends with us, well, that is a t that's a big burden to bear. And you have to constantly sort of mask who you really are in order to get along under this scheme, under this plan. Um, and that is tiring. Under this... It's grace, then peace. It begins and ends with God. It relies fully on God's power. What does that mean? The deeper uh, you plunge into your, a sense of your own sin, the, the, the more 
you're being sanctified. Like, that's a work of the Spirit. If, you are, if you're troubled by what we just read, that is an indication that the Spirit is at work within you, deepening your love for Christ. Right? Because, because that's how Christian growth works. Right? We decrease. Christ gets magnified in us. It doesn't mean that we're sinning more. It's that we're more broken over our sin. And I think that's liberating, that it's all based on God's might. Jake, I thought you I thought the wheels were turning there. I was thinking about you. Yeah. So one of the central themes of the, of the Old Testament is creation, fall, and recreation. Uh-huh. And it plays itself out over and over and over again. Yeah. And so while Job may begin, he was blameless and upright, and Noah might begin, he was blameless and upright. The point is, is that there's gonna be a fall, very predictably. And so it's it's retelling the story of, of Adam who could not be perfect. Yeah. And then the only time that you could be recreated is is whenever you get the end of Job, and it's when he encounters God's holiness, and he says, you know, who are you to speak to me? Yeah. Who are you whenever I, you know? Yeah. It seems like it cries out for the gospel, actually. It's proving again, no, no, you can't do this without me. Yeah. No, that's good. Yeah. That's really good. Yes, Dave. Casey, the question I have is in relation to this idea of the first three verses speak almost clarification to make. Paul is describing the church before they came to faith in Christ, right? And um, he's actually doing, it's kind of a, it's a continuation of this prayer. And he's going to sort of meander through this prayer because what, what he's done is he said, uh, there's a power um, that's at work within you. I pray that you would know that power. It's the same power that raised Christ from the dead. And then verse one of chapter two, and you too were dead in your trespasses and sin. That power, resurrection power, has already done a miraculous work in you because it's raised you up from your death and sin and made you alive in Christ. So yes, all of this is past tense. Now, the, the, my claim that um, growth in Christian holiness looks like an understanding, a growing understanding of both God's holiness and our own sin, and the only means that can reconcile those two things, which is the cross. As we grow in that understanding, um, we, get, we, we, we become more sanctified and, and grow up in Christ. That, um, that doesn't show up right in these verses. So that I'm kind of relying on other biblical texts. I mean, I, I think in Galatians chapter I think it's the beginning of chapter 3, verse 1, where Paul talks about, you know, having begun in the spirit and, and in faith. Are you now trying to be perfected in the flesh? And the answer is no. You're saved by grace and mercy in the spirit, and you're sanctified by those things as well. 
Um, and so there's a lot to say on that, and we're going to talk about that because this, this will be a central feature of King's Cross Church. Our belief that it is the gospel, um, the work of Christ on our behalf, a growing understanding of who Jesus is, an exaltation of Jesus that actually transforms us into the people that, that God wants us to be. And that's what we're going to, that's really all we're going to do. I've said it before, but I'm, I'm going to be kind of a one-trick pony, just preaching Jesus and the gospel every week. So if that sounds boring, it might be a good time to leap. I'm just kidding. <laughs> I'm just kidding. Um, so anyway, that's a that's, uh, good question, Dave. And hopefully, as we kind of make our way through Ephesians, we'll continue to kind of wrestle with that question. Um, one more question. Anybody have one more question, then we'll wrap things up. We got an important American cultural event to participate in. <laughs> okay, I'm going to pray for us and then we will um, break. Father, we, uh, we give you thanks that you um, have acted so kindly towards us in Jesus. We recognize our deficiencies, our sins, our um, transgressions, our missing the mark. And we thank you that uh, this Ephesians passage has verse 4 and following. Uh, it could certainly not have verse 4 and following. Um, but you have acted so lovingly and generously to us in Christ. And we ask that you would, um, by your spirit, help deepen our love uh, for you and for Jesus. And give us, as Paul prayed in chapter 1, give us knowledge of Jesus, of the glorious inheritance that awaits us, the power that's at work within us that has brought us from death to life in Christ. And um, we pray these things in Christ's name. Amen.